All right. Good morning, familia. Welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church. For those of you visiting for the first time, my name is Hannibal, one of the pastors here at church. Um, and as many of you know, last week we started this new series called The Greatest Story, the Story of God and His Bride or God and His People. And basically what we're doing is we are walking together through the whole story of the Bible, also known as the story of redemption. Starting with the book of Genesis, going all the way to the book of Revelation. uh, And we are choosing specific passages or events in the story of redemption so we could get the big picture. And in this story, the story of redemption, there are four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And last week, what we started doing, we started with chapter 1, the chapter, uh, the, the chapter of creation. And today and next week, we will continue to talk about the chapter of creation because it is there where we see God's original design for his creation. In other words, if you, wanted, if you really want to know what was God's original design for this beautiful creation, you have to spend time in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And one of the things that we see there, and I find it, uh, we didn't plan it this way, but I find it super interesting as we talked about today, the sanctity of human life, is because, as Pastor Couch just said, one of the reasons why we believe in the sanctity of human life is because there in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that humanity has been created in the image of God. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to see what that means. I'm going to try to explain in a simple way what being created in the image of God is. And we're going to use three terms to explain that. We're going to talk about connection. We're going to talk about reflection. And we're going to talk about representation. Connection, reflection, and representation. And because I like participation to keep with the Asian things, um, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Both of, uh, for those of you that are here, for those of you that are in the, worst, West Wor- and the East Worship Center, I need you to do me a favor. And I need, I, need, I need you to follow the instructions just as I say them, okay? I need you to look at both sides of where you are and say to both people, you have been created in the image of God. Go ahead, go ahead. That's good enough. I'm going to explain later on why is it that I owe every week, as uncomfortable as some of you guys get, why is it that I ask you to do that every week? Actually, I'm going to give you the theological reasons why I do that. So let's go with point number one. The image of God as connection. All right, so let's, let's, let's dig into the text, and you're going to see a little bit of the context here. So in verse one uh, and verse two, the, the Bible tells us that everything starts with God. Actually, it tells, us, it tells you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God is the one that creates everything. That God is the one that creates matter. That without him, nothing exists. And it also paints a picture of a God that brings order amid void or chaos. Now, what you, what you should find super interesting about Genesis chapter 1 is that if you really pay attention, God creates most things in pairs. And that's going to become significant later on when we talk about humanity. Notice that for the most part, God creates everything in pairs, and those things complement each other. So, for example, he creates light and darkness. He creates heaven and earth, the waters above and the waters below. 
He creates seas and earth. He creates vegetation and animals. He creates the sun and the moon. Pairs, all by pairs. And by the time we get to verses 26 and 27, Sony scholars say that we, that we arrive to the climax of this creation. And I agree with every single one of them. And God now is keeping, it's almost like if God is now keeping the best for last. And then he tells you that the only, quote unquote, thing in his creation, let me say that again, that the only, quote unquote, thing in God's creation that carries his image is humanity. Everything points to him. But the only, quote-unquote, thing that carries his image is humanity. And we find that in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created Dumb. Once again, it's important to see that everything in creation points back to him. Everything in creation is about him. Everything in creation points somehow to some of his attributes. For example, in creation we can see his beauty, his creativity, his perfection, his power, and so on. But nothing in creation has his image except humanity. And the reason that that's the case is because humanity, in a very unique way, listen, church, is connected to God like nothing else. And God is connected to humanity like nothing else. It's about connection. Let me say that again. What makes the difference between humanity and the rest of creation is that humanity is connected to God like nothing else, and God is connected to humanity like nothing else. God cares about all this creation. That's why at one point he's going to re, re, restore, rest, uh, bring restoration to all creation. But what the Bible makes clear right from the beginning is that he loves humanity in a very unique way, not the way he loves the rest of his creation. And that's why verse 7 is so important, church. Look at what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of, um, God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Notice that in verse 7, God makes a distinction between the rest of creation and humanity. Only people created in his image, and I'm quoting a, a scholar here, have the very breath of God sustaining them. That's a beautiful quote. Only humanity have the, or, have the, or has the breath of God sustaining them. And that's important for us to pay attention to because he tells you that our dignity and our value, our dignity and our value is not about degrees. Like if some people reflect the image of God more than others. And he tells you that our value and dignity, it doesn't have anything to do with attributes or gifts or ability. Like if our image is greater if we have talents, gifts, or abilities. Actually, the text tells you that, the, that our value and dignity does not have to do anything with potential or usefulness. 
Like if our value and dignity is bound to the things that we could possibly do. No, not at all. The Bible tells you that the value and dignity, uh, and dignity of human beings comes down to this. That humanity is connected to God like nothing else. And God is connected to humanity like nothing else. This is why believers, believers should never justify racism, prejudice, or classism. Like, how, how do people argue that? That's why as Christians, we should believe in biblical justice and to give what people need and people deserve. That's not a secular concept. That's a biblical uh, concept. That's why as Christians, we should never, and I'm going to go back to what Pastor Couch has said, we should never be one-issue people. You know what I mean? That as long as humanity struggles, we care about anything and everything that that humanity struggles with. Because we, are, we ought to defend and speak up and love people from the womb all the way to the tomb. That's why I find it awful. I mean, it's kind of funny, but I find it awful. When people love their pets more than humanity. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that little sticker. I've seen it many times that says, the more I know people, the more I love my dog. It's kind of funny, but it's so offensive. How could that be? This is why I actually, if you are still not a believer and you're exploring Christianity, I have to question you if you actually have any basis for human rights and justice. Because if you fall in the category of believing in evolution, then humanity is nothing more than an improved version of an animal. How do we justify human rights and justice? See, some secular people would justify that and say, well, yeah, we, we believe in, in human rights and justice because, you know, we believe that people have abilities and potential. You know what the problem is with that? That the value and dignity of a human being, it only works as long as you have that. William Shakespeare, in his amazing writing Hamlet, or story, uh, Hamlet, he says this. What a piece of work is, is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving. How ad- admirable in action. How like an angel. In apprehension. How like God. In beauty. The beauty of the world. The paragon of animals. <laughs> it sounds awesome. And people say, yeah. Until you actually pay attention to what he said. He says that humans are just like animals. An improved version of an animal. And he says that humanity is beautiful as long as they have faculties, an amazing form. They can move and the things they do. What happens if you lose that? According to Shakespeare, you no longer have value and you no longer have dignity. But that is not the Christian perspective. This is why Christianity is so different to the secular view of humanity. The Christian perspective is that all humanity has value and dignity. And that value doesn't have anything to do with levels of degrees or attributes or gifts or abilities or potential or usefulness. Because our value and dignity is based on one thing and one thing alone. 
Humanity is connected to God like nothing else, and God is connected to humanity like nothing else. This is why, church, even after the fall, after sin enters the world, the image of God is damaged and broken, but is not lost. Even as broken people, we still carry the image of God. A broken image, but the image nonetheless. How do I know that? Well, when you keep on reading, and we're going to see this later on, by the time you get Genesis chapter 9, you get to the story, I believe, Genesis chapter 9, you get to the story of the flood, story of Noah. You remember what was the first thing that God told Noah right after the flood? Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made in his own image that man. That is the foundation of belief for the commandment number six. You shall not kill. It's rooted in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And that's not just a concept in the Old Testament. When you go to the New Testament and people are going to feel, if you are here, you're about to feel guilty, just so you know. When you go all the way to the New Testament, and actually, let me, let me stop there. The reason why you, I, want, I want you to feel guilty is because as I'm writing this sermon, I felt guilty. And I don't want to be the only one suffering in my misery. When you get to the New Testament, James is correcting, scolding the church of Jesus Christ because they lack control in the things they say. That's the correction. And look at what he says in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 9. With our mouth, we blessed our Lord and Father, and with our mouth, we cursed people who are made in the image or likeness of God. In verse 10, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Isn't that crazy? Look, at James is being here super sarcastic. That's why I'm sarcastic. He says, how do you use your mouth as an instrument of worship? And with the same mouth, you trash people created in the image of God. How many of you guys feel guilty? Whew, only like five of us. Whew. You know, so jokes aside, this is... This week, I was uh, talking to one of my daughters, and then I said something about this kid, and I said, that kid is an idiot. Do not do this at home. And I just said it. But I'm writing this, man, and that comes to mind. That kid might be a foolish, but I cannot call him an idiot. Because I'm violating the image of God. Is that how you view people? Is that how you view people, you view the people you struggle with? Is that how you treat people? Even the people that you struggle with? Is that how you see yourself? Now, see, the reason why I ask you to greet one another at the beginning of all of my sermons is for one simple reason. If you are here whether in the West or in the East. You are here and you carry the image of God 
with you. Therefore, whether you like it or not, and it makes you uncomfortable or not, you, by God's design, should be seen, should be acknowledged. Because God makes no junk. That's one of my professors used to say. Can you see? Why is it that the image of God is all about connection? Humanity is connected to God like nothing else, and God is connected to humanity like nothing else. Let me say that again. God makes no junk. Amen? Actually, do me a favor. Whether you're here in the East, look at the person next to you and say the same thing. God makes no uh, no junk. Go ahead. All right. Point number two. The image of God is not just about connection. It's also about reflection. Now, let's look at verse 26 again. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So I want to start there with the word likeness because it's an important word. And the text tells you that even though all humanity carry within them or within ourselves the image of God, and that is what gives us dignity and value, we must remember that we are only created in his likeness. You know why that's important? Because he tells you that as awesome as we are from God's perspective, we are not God. We are like God, but we are not him. We are simply a reflection. A reflection of who he is. I think that one good way for us to see this is to see ourselves as mirrors. Like a mirror reflects the, the true image of something else. But anybody would say that that mirror is not the thing or the person that is reflecting. Now, I think that's a healthy perspective. Because I think that we forget that. And I actually think that we struggle when we forget that we are just like God. Not not God. And therefore, we cannot expect to think like God thinks all the time. And we shouldn't even play God. Actually, this is family, right? I want to make the argument that when you struggle in life, most of the time, maybe 99% of the time, is because we forget that we are not God. We want to control things that we cannot control. We want to know things that we cannot know. We want to do things that we cannot do. It's because we forget that we are being created in the likeness of God. We are a reflection of him. Now, this is about to get super interesting. And this is something that you have heard me say and others say here in this church time and time again. Because whenever we think about the image of God and being created in the likeness of God, the tendency is to automatically use our Western view to say, oh, that means that I carry the image of God in me by myself. And I'm going to show you and I want to make the argument that that is now how God designed community. That that is now how God designed humanity. 
that even though as individuals, we all carry, the, uh, carry to a certain degree the image of God within ourselves, at the end of the day, the only way we can truly and best reflect the image of God is in community. Where do I get that from? Did you notice how God created us? Let us make God in our, in our image after our likeness. See, this is one of the first places where we start to see hints of the Trinity. See, in verse number one, verse one, it says that in the beginning, God created, and we can almost assume that that's God the Father. But then in verse 2, the text says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. And we know that that's the Holy Spirit. So at the very least, just from this passage, we know that God has to be more than one person. And if you were here last week, I quoted John chapter 1, in which it says that God, Jesus, was present in creation. And this is important because then it tells you that when God designed, uh, designed human beings, he did not design us just to be people by ourselves. God designed us the way he is, unity in diversity. That as a body of believers, we're supposed to embrace unity in diversity. That if we really, really want to display the image of God to the, to the, to the max, we must live and embrace community. We must learn how to live in unity in diversity. And I can make the application and say that that is true for people of different cultures and ethnicities and social classes and nations and languages. And the only reason why I have no issue in making that connection is because that is the picture of heaven according to Revelations 5 and 7. It doesn't make any sense that we have a picture of heaven that shows all these kinds of different people and we say that's not the way we're supposed to be here. It doesn't make any sense. We best display the image of God Together than separate. What is interesting, though, is that in this text, we see that the best way we display the image of God in this text is not just with unity and diversity with all, all kinds of people, but unity and diversity when it comes to males and females. That we best display the image of God when males and females love each other, serve each other, care for each other, and need each other. Look what it says, Genesis 1, 26, again. And 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. You know what's so important in our cultural moment? Because we live in a cultural moment in which we have males saying, thinking that they can display the image of God by themselves. And we have women that think that they can display the image of God by themselves. But that is not what the text says. We best reflect the image of God by design 
where males and females learn how to do life together. You know, I love this passage. Because there is a difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 1, we get the picture for humanity in general. It tells you that in general, humanity, males and difference, they, uh, and females, they both carry the same dignity and the same value, and no one can take that from us. But in the same time, it tells you that we are different. That we're supposed to be different. And that we cannot, listen up, and that we cannot grow into becoming more and more the image of God. And function as the image of God unless we embrace our similarities and our differences. I'm going to put it even more radical and I know I'm going to get an email after this one. You, if you're a male, need females in your life. And you, if you're a female, need males in your life by design. This is not even talking about marriage just yet. You know why that's important? Because I need grandfathers and grandmothers. I need fathers and mothers. I need brothers and sisters. I need male friends and female friends. I need female mentors and male mentors. I need a community of both genders. Listen up, church, this is why later on in the New Testament, the primary way the New Testament talks about the church is not the body of Christ. That it's one of the ways, but not the primary way. You know, it's the primary way the Bible talks about the, the church. A family. A familia. A community of only brothers. No. A community of brothers and sisters. We need our gender differences. We need them. See, from that perspective, I think that one of the things that has, one of the worst things that has happened in church history is that churches have created this culture in which we do everything in our power to keep genders apart because we don't want to be tempted. Listen, I, I think that we have to be wise. I, I think that's in a sin. Temptation is temptation. I think that's a thing. I think that we have to exercise discernment. I think that there's a ton of people that thought that they were strong and they did really dumb things. That's not the problem. The problem is when we forget that at the end of the day, God has put together a bunch of different people, males and females, as brothers and sisters. That's what you should see first in the opposite sex. At least in the context of the church. We are brothers and sisters. We need our gender uniqueness. We need our differences. We need those differences to help each other, love each, uh, sup, uh, love each other, support each other. This is the call in Genesis chapter 1 for all humanity. This is the general call to all humanity. Now, pay attention here for those of you that are married. If that is true of all humanity, how much more true in marriage? 
And this is why Genesis chapter 2 then makes an application of Genesis chapter 1, and he brings it to marriage. And if I lost some friends at the beginning, I'm about to lose some more friends right now. See, from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and we didn't read this. But it says that God created the man, and he placed him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. And then um, God tells Adam to eat everything except from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And we're going to talk about that two weeks from now, God willing. But look at what he says in verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And look at what he says. He says it again in verse 20. Then the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no fa not found a helper fit for him. Did you see that? God creates Adam and put him to work. He says, I created you for a purpose. Work, create, bring beauty, restoration, whatever. Just work my garden. But then the text says that God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that he's alone. Now, listen, you got to ask the question what that means. It cannot mean loneliness because God is with him. There's perfect harmony. There's no sin present. So it cannot mean that Adam was lonely. It has to mean something else. And if you remember the context is that God is giving Adam this calling, this vocation to bring glory to God's name and contribute to his purposes. And it is with that in mind that we understand then that God looks at man and says, man, there's no one that could actually contribute with him for God's purposes and God's glory. Therefore, I need a helper fit for him. You know what that means if you're married? You need your husband, and your husband needs you. You know, it's so interesting when people hear this, this thing about being the helper, especially secular culture. It says, well, I don't really like that word. That seems like a woman is the helper. And I said, maybe you should read the Bible. Maybe you should read the Bible because the word help literally means strength. And it's a word, a name that God gives himself more than anyone else. Actually, the word helper appears in the Old Testament 19 times. 16 times that name is given to God, and the remaining three are given to women. You know why we need each other in marriage? Because what I need, my wife has. And her strength is what I need. We need each other. That's why sometimes people call husbands and wives... A beautiful interruption is someone that actually is not like you. So it's a sign off for those of you guys that are single. When you're ready for marriage or you find someone to get married, you're not just picking someone that is going to make you stop feeling alone. 
You're praying for someone that will complement you. Remember the creation and the pairs? Someone that will complement you to fulfill God's purposes and live for God's glory. That is the difference in Christian marriage. We don't just pick people. We are praying for people that will help us live for the glory of God and fulfill his purposes. We need one another. The female has what the male doesn't have, and the male has what the female does not have. Actually, the text is going to make it even more beautiful. By the way, God created the woman. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 21. It says that God, uh, verse 22, it says that God takes a rib, and then the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, scholars, almost every scholar I read agreed in saying that that image of taking a rib out is to create and, and, and explain the intimacy and harmony that should be within the context of marriage between a male and a female. Actually, Matthew Henry, a Puritan, uh, this is what he says. I love the way he describes it. He says, the woman is not made out of his head to tap him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. You know how we reflect the image of God? When we learn to see how much males need females and females need males. Can you see how countercultural this is? See, toxic masculinity has completely ignored this. And feminism has completely ignored this. The Christian perspective is completely different. Actually, if, if you don't think that that's, that's the case, just pay attention to the expression that Adam brings when he sees this woman. Verse 23. Then the, man, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called the woman because she was taken out of a man. You know what the phrase at last means? It's an expression of joy. Let me translate that for you. That will be like, Wow. Uy, 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 where have you been? That's the expression. Please don't be influenced by what the culture says. We are as males and females. And if I lost enough friends right now, I'm about to lose some more. Because even though Genesis 1 tells you that you are both have the same dignity and value, and that Genesis 2 says that in marriage, both are needed, and you complement one another, God calls the men to a unique role within the context of marriage. You want to see it? Verse 24. God tells the men. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one 
place. This is one of the first places where we start to see why is it that the, new, the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament it starts to call calls men servant leaders. Did you notice that it is to the men that God calls to live his father and mother? Did you notice that he called the men to hold fast to his wife? Did you notice that he called the men to become one flesh? This is my translation of it. He's calling Adam. He's telling Adam, you need your wife. You need her strength. You need her to, uh, you need her to display the image of God best. Make sure that she is first to you before anyone else. Make sure that you are committed to her and love her with covenant love. Make sure to cultivate and protect that unity, to protect that one fleshness. Don't ever forget that she complements you. You represent her. And if you struggle with that, you got to come back next week. Because after the fall... The first person God goes, God goes after is the male. Once again, we live in a culture in which toxic masculinity has completely abused that. And the opposite, we have feminism that completely forgets that. The image of God means connection. We have value and dignity because we are connected to God like nothing else, and God is connected to us like nothing else. The image of God means reflection. We reflect God as individuals, but we best reflect God in unity and diversity. We best reflect God as males and females, and we need one another by each other by design. And number three, the image of God as representation. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Verse 27, male and female, female, he created them. So the question for you is this. Do you know what dominion means? If you want to know what that is, you have to come back next week because my time is up. On purpose. When you look at yourself, you should see the beauty of God in you. A broken beauty, but beauty nonetheless. When you look at others, we, you should see the beauty of God in them. Broken beauty, but beauty nonetheless. If you're a male, when you look at a female, and you're a female when you look at a man, you should see why is it that God created us. The same and different. By the way, that is the translation for the word fit. It's like a puzzle. It just fits. May the Lord grant us to be a church in which we learn to see each other as brothers and sisters. That we need one another for God's glory and God's purposes. Amen? Let's pray. Our beautiful Savior, we are grateful that as a community, we best display your image. As a community, in unity and diversity, and even unity without uniformity. Lord, I want to take the time to be grateful to you for the kind of people that you have made part of our church. We are grateful for our brothers and sisters. We are grateful for our brothers and sisters that come from different cultures and backgrounds and nations and speak different languages and different social classes. Lord, we are so grateful that you have made of us 
a community in which we display unity and diversity. My prayer, Lord, is that we learn to embrace that. That we see your beauty, beauty in us. That we embrace your beauty in us. That we see, Lord, that there's, there's a divine design behind the concept of unity and diversity. And Lord, please help us see humanity in general as people with dignity and value. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says,